this way. And this new year it feels like a beginning for us. We did the potluck last week, which felt always a little less formal. But here we are trying to do like a normalish thing again this week, albeit without musicians. But we do sometimes do that. So welcome. We have on this MLK Sunday, um, kicking off a new series on, on what, what do we call it? Faith, Capitalism, and the Kingdom of God, which feels really appropriate to MLK Sunday in a lot of ways, and I hope that, yeah, we'll find that theme tracing us through tonight some, but I think, yeah, well, I went back and forth with Molly on whether or not to do this lovely thing that she chose or something else from MLK, but we're going to do this, so this call together to pull us together tonight. Spirit, who animates all things, help us to listen now. May we abandon our many pursuits, keeping us ever busy, never listening to your gentle, fierce products. Guide us in the ways of life. Help us release our addictions, superiorities, certainties, white-knuckling, fear-suppressing, blame, shame, and deep-seated hatreds. May we find something more reliable to keep us warm these long winter nights. Help us face the pain that is ours, though we didn't cause it. Help us to find the power to face it and the grace not to let us craze us, even as we find courage and lean into wisdom herself, who assures us we won't, don't, can't face it alone. Grant us the integrity to go there, to heal and mend it, rather than kneel to and let it rend us. Help us to summon deeper reserves, find ways to stop clinging, grasping, manipulating, controlling, posturing, name-calling, intellectualizing, using abusing, abandoning, to instead fall into grief, risk the free fall into her trusty embrace, reacquaint ourselves with this old friend, this long-lost guy, banished and withheld from us strategically for far dangerously too long. Let Herod and his minions get all hot and bothered. We will keep our eyes on the star, just off stage, leading to all the unlikely places, real power residing there, unconquerable, paradoxical, scandalously heretical, beckoning us to trust and go home by another way. Help us brave the quiet, embodied work of coming together to name our pain, joy, sorrow, triumph, shame. Help us to relearn the gift of being together without trying to fix, save, teach, control, woo. Help us not to fear our rage or let it take center stage, becoming neither personal prison badge of honor, or simple solution to the battered fragments of all our delusion. Help us, instead, to follow its fire to deeper, wider ranges of feeling, acting, being human, finding freedom. Free us from the constricting atrophy and severe rigidity of imperialist, white, supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy. Help us answer the long, fierce groan of creation to echo our long-denied need to nurture greater depths of gentle ferocity, rooted reciprocity, vulnerable agility, slow urgency, healing audacity, respectful bombacity. May these be long to us, joining in your healing work, O oh, Spirit, who animates all things. Amen. So, echoes of epiphany, of justice, capitalism, new things on the horizon, new things in our life together. This we look forward to together tonight. Um, to take us further into that, there was also debate about whether or not we would actually sing our new community song. And I said, a quote-unquote no music night makes the community song mean more important. 
Right? So, and it was said that I would lead it, but I thought Rhodey would lead it. No, I thought you were leading it. That's what Molly texted me two hours ago. See, there you go. It's a real-time account for all your reckoning. So yeah, I think this is a song we know. If you don't know, this, this is a song that plays like a hymn, but actually was written in the 1960s by a then-Catholic priest, which I assume means he's no longer a Catholic priest, serving on the south side of Chicago, who thought, you know what, uh, a lot of this material I've been handed doesn't seem to play here. So, yeah, this is a good one. They'll know we are Christian. Sing with us. Church 
Southwest Durham. If you're interested in doing this, I know a couple of us are going to do the training, but uh, we would love to hit our target of five people. If you're interested, you can talk to me, you can talk to Sarah, um, you can talk to Tim Wooten, a whole range of us. We would love to hear from you if you're willing to do that. Also, uh, the research action teams for both jobs and housing are starting right now. They both have like, one meeting. So if you want to be on the ground floor in terms of designing those actions, this is a great time to do that and talk to you about that. Thank you, Tim. Tim can do new things in the new year. And yeah, I saw we were going to give an update about Mark and Katrina and Soren, but then Mark and Katrina and Soren walked in. So yeah. Mark, would you care to share a little bit about where you guys are at in this early stage of your job? Yeah, sure. Soren's had help with the babysitter, but it was a, a rough, really rough week, and I'm trying to hold it together without going into too much detail. But it was a, a difficult week. One of the things we, and for those of you who don't know, our son Soren is preparing for a bone marrow transplant. He has a rare genetic disease. Um, and we got news this week that he has a new infection. Um, that we didn't know he had, and so it's kind of delaying everything. It just means that we're going to be, we were hoping to begin transplanting in about a week. We can have, we have to wait at least another month to do another CT scan and uh, figure out at that point if we can do transplant then or if we have to keep waiting. So he's on an like, intravenous uh, antibiotic now that we have to administer at home, and I'm like hopeless at that. I'm yeah. not to do it. Um, we have to do that like three times a day, it takes an hour, so we're having to get up at like two in the morning and do it while he's kind of in half sleep. It's just, it's hard. It's been a hard week and um, we're just sort of like living in more uncertainty now. Thanks for giving us some, I know that if folks want to get more regular updates, there's a lots of helping hands thing that they can get on and yeah, that's another way to sort of be in the loop on ways that we can help you guys and connect with you guys and come around with you as you continue to. And if you'd like to get updates on that, you can just, uh, your mama, you can send me an email I can add you to. And there are several people I can add you to. Mama can, Justin can. There are a number of people I can Thanks, Mark. So with that, take us into preparation for our evening's conversation. If you're relatively new to us, usually, almost always, most of the time, we're leaning on music to do our practice of preparation, getting us ready for dialogue, opening up some space around what we're going to be talking about, conversing about, and, and to do confession absolution. But we'll be doing both of those non-musically tonight. That's not totally rare for us, it's just a sort of minority share of how we frame our time together. But, with that, I will say that um, we were able to find some good voices to take us into this two Christian thinkers who have spent a lot of their um, work as, as writers, thinkers, theologians, academics around issues of economics um, and justice. And so those two folks, uh, I'll play and you'll hear these two voices in succession. It'll be obvious. One sounds very German, one doesn't at all. Um, yeah. So Miroslav Wolf is a theologian at Yale Divinity School, spent a lot of his work talking about intersection of faith, economics, work, capitalism, that sort of thing. And then Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament theologian who's going to be speaking really specifically about how he sees the interest in justice in the Old Testament and how that might play for us as people in a late capitalist system. So I'm going to go and press play on both of those.
and then Molly will help us pass the piece. Uh, in one of the chapters in the public faith, 
Um, and we have <coughs> lost the ability in the public realm to discuss questions of uh, what makes up for the good life. My, my, my current, think, current thinking about how to read the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament in our society uh, uh, works by way of an analog, and I've come to the conclusion problems that the ancient prophets were trying to deal with in Israel are exactly the same problems that we've got to try to deal with prophetically in our society. And I kind of um, uh, reduced those probably too schematically uh, to say that, that uh, um, the, the problem with that ancient society and our society uh, is an ideology uh, that leads to denial about the facts on the ground. So the ideology of, uh, of uh, the market, of, of uh, unbridled uh, predatory capitalism, uh, uh, really closes its eyes to all of the, the human abuses and human need. And uh, that ideology uh, uh, makes it possible uh, for us to deny all of that simply by refusing to recognize that there are people who are victims of the predatory society. And obviously that pertains to uh, racial ethnic minorities and, and the way the, the market ideology handles people like that is it just puts them in jail and then they're not a bother to anybody. So what I've tried to argue in my book uh, is that ideology has really failed I think our recent uh, economic failure uh, is an indication that the capitalist system in its unregulated form that we've got uh, simply doesn't function anymore. Uh, and what we are experiencing in our society is a loss of confidence in all of the old ways that we thought were settled and certain. And uh, one of the prophetic tasks is to engage in grief about the loss of all of those things that we don't want to lose. We don't want to admit that we've lost our privilege and our entitlement and our control uh, and our technological capacity to have life the way we want it. And I tried to make the argument that in ancient Israel, when they finally got around to the work of grief and were able to relinquish uh, those old forms, then it became possible for them to hope for a new possibility. So I think that hope is not possible until we do honest grief work about the fact that the old modes of control and certitude have now failed. Uh, and as long as we live in the illusion uh, that that's still the way we're going to operate, then we are not going to be able to be open to anything new that God is doing in the world. And so that's kind of uh, how I draw the analogy to that. I thought we could do all things through Christ. So you're saying through Christ we can't uh, worship God and man? Well, I think that's right. I think that's what Jesus said. You cannot, you cannot serve God and man because you will love one and hate the other. And it's very interesting that he goes, as you know, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, exactly into talking about lilies and sparrows and all those people that are not so productive. So it seems to me he's calling in to question the, uh, the uh, production system. And uh, as you may know, I've uh, uh, 
great deal out of the fact that in that teaching, uh, Jesus says uh, that they are better off than Solomon. And Solomon in the Old Testament is the great predatory figure who uh, uh, wants to collect everything he can get his hands on. So I think it's not all accidental that uh, Jesus uh, uses the name of Solomon uh, in that particular teaching, who is an embodiment of uh, predatory economics.
come from a family who has a father with a doctorate. Both my parents have college educations. It's pretty easy for me to be kind of complicit in the system because it's worked for me overall. And my realities of complicity within this large system resurfaced more recently on, June, on Juneteenth in 2015. I was at a big Baptist conference and I was at a luncheon and Reverend Dr. Marvin McNichol, the president of Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School, um, addressed a room of about 500 plus folks, predominantly white. And he said, the white church deafening silence and inattention to the reality that our economy has been built on the backs and the blood of slaves and continues to be built on the backs and the blood of the poor is something that you need to break. Will you, in this room, break the silence and act? And everyone in that room stood up after he spoke, clapping. And I, because we know that I'm a crier that has been established, had tears <laughs> in my eyes. It was a beautiful, provocative sermon. But as I was standing there <laughs> clapping and sitting at a table with dear colleagues and friends, thought, many of us here probably won't change our lives that much because of this truth. We won't speak that loudly and act that boldly whenever it comes to economics. Because many of us sitting here around this table who are pastors and congregations are also thinking to ourselves, we need a paycheck. And whenever you start talking about capitalism and money, things get a little dicey. And I was sitting there though, because I was still crying, because I had just got off the phone with Dan Rhodes, who said, Molly, the previous minister before, whenever I called, say, hey, I think maybe they want me, should I go to this church? Tell me about it. He said, Molly, of any church that I've ever been a part of, the Mayus way is one that can actually do something and do things that matter. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe in this next community. Why this series? It seems pertinent, right? I think we all have experiences with money. We have memories with money. We have systemic injustice tied to our money. Perhaps for some of us, we even have visceral reaction when we start talking about money and capitalism. Maybe some of us, whenever you think about it, you think back to like your years like getting an MBA or econ class. I don't know, that's not my experience. There's some uneasiness around it. There are questions with that and wonderings, at least I think for a lot of us, how do you reconcile capitalism and wealth and the kingdom of God? Do you? Is it reconcilable? I don't know. In the very beginning of Economy of Grace, theologian Catherine Tanner notes, one of the most salient features of the wider world, especially in our day, is its economic character. The wider world has its principles for the production of goods, 
or more generally, for the creation of value and its principles for the distribution and exchange, the circulation of such good. Every theological category, she says, and claim, no matter how basic and theologically primary, say the very idea of who and what God is might very well then be framed from the very beginning in response to these economic principles of the wider world. And so I want us to spend the next 20 minutes or so talking about our frame, the frame that each of us is bringing into this space, hearing your responses to memories around money, your word association with capitalism, because I think that our individual frame, right, and histories and experiences and what we're bringing into this space really shapes our conversation. And I think we have to be honest in how probably for a lot of us, money and God, and sometimes God and money together, have been so intertwined in perhaps both positive and not so positive ways. So we're going to do like kind of questions, two sort of questions initially, and then we're going to do a word dump activity just because I thought it sounded fun. Um, but sort of this is going to be a time of sharing. So I want to hear from you. You can answer one or both of these questions. What was your first memory with money? Or what did the church teach you about money growing up? What was your first memory of money and or what did the church teach you about money growing up? At church, um, <clears throat> we always learn money belongs to God. Your money belongs to God. And should give 10% of it. <laughs> Money belongs to God and give 10%. Yes, yes. Were you raised Baptist? Yeah. Yeah, good Baptist answer, right? Yeah. Very early, very early on learned that. What else? What was your first memory with money, or what did the church teach you about money growing up? I'll give the Presbyterian point of view. Please. All right. So it was also framed with parents born in 1926 and 1928 mm -hmm. who lived through the Depression yeah. and were married in 1950. So in my family growing up, and I, I'm putting family and church together, because mm -hmm. that was the For sure South. That was the way it was. Capitalism was really inextricable from mm -hmm. Christianity. Yeah. And um, the counterpoint would be communism, mm -hmm. which took away all your rights and all your creativity and any incentive to make yourself a better person. Okay. So we, my, my siblings and I, by the time we were in high school, with great love and affection, would tease my father for, we would, we would name these lectures, the Free Enterprise Lecture number, 300. <laughs> and through that period of time, I was a devotee of Amaranth. Mm -hmm. So that is the backdrop. All right. And inextricable from being a Presbyterian, and we were preordained to have wealth. Yeah. You probably would really enjoy uh, Tanner's economy. I would love that. Because she talks a lot about um, Presbyterianism specifically. 
Thanks, Sally. Others? Yeah, Elon? I don't know if this is my first memory, but a very early memory of mine. Um, my aunt would give us Easter baskets, and they'd have quarters in an egg, and nickels in an egg, and dimes in an egg, and one egg would have a dollar. Yeah. And I would trade my sister her dollar for a quarter because they were shiny. <laughs> <laughs> That's spectacular. I guess I was a early capitalist. A capitalist trading. I remember that uh, friends and I were playing, I was really young, maybe five or six, and she wanted something that I had, and I was like, oh sure, you can have it, and then later on I told my mom that I had given it to her, and my mom was like, now you don't have that, like, it must have been a beach toy, like, the next time you go to the beach, you can't play with it, whatever, and I was crushed, I was like, oh no, I lost this thing, and I didn't even know what I was doing, and I think that's affected my idea of giving a lot, as I'm like, I give it away, then I can't have it, and I don't yeah. know. And my parents are actually very generous and giving yeah. people, and so my mom did not intend to teach that and modeled giving in a lot of other really good ways. Like my parents were pretty overt about giving money at church, and were very explicit about training us to like give our ten percent free tax. But I think somehow like that subconsciously of like. Yeah, kind of this notion of scarcity, right? Right, yeah, that, like, exactly. If I don't, if I give away, will there be enough yeah, mm -hmm. for me, the loss? Yeah. Others? Other thoughts on money? Yeah, Emily? I have a story. It feels awkward because my parents are... <laughs> <laughs>
He never wanted us. So this is something too, right? To use language of blessing. But I could use language of providing, which I'm still trying to like tease out and sort of how that plays into capitalism, but does that make sense? <coughs> Any other last thoughts? Yeah, Brandon. I remember my first memories of as parents were yeah. in the business of creating memories. For sure. <laughs> so how are you course. teaching your kids yeah. about that? I think in general, whether they're seven years old, um, there's a lot of they're figuring out the value of money. And um, today we had an experience at lunch where he wanted to pay, and so he gave me uh, money out of his little wallet that he carries around that he loses every day or two. Um, <laughs> and to pay, and she said great, and she put it away and then paid with a credit card, and he was got. Super angry. And, um, so we had to have like this conversation, which was, well, don't you get it? Like, you know, you still paid, but we did it with this card, and, and you know, figuring out that he actually doesn't realize at all how credit works. And yeah. <laughs> still did what he wanted. It. But then we we're in the business of sort of explaining this crazy system to him, right? I'm like, well, we don't pay for it now. Yeah. We just wipe this plastic thing. And it's from now, pay for everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, to not accrue interest. And he's yeah. like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but it just sort of, I don't know, this question for those of you that think about this, this is likely yeah. for him one of those, maybe one of those experiences that, that forms. Yeah. And here we are kind of indoctrinating yeah. him into the credits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can totally see Aiden be like, that's crazy. Like, that is nuts. Yeah. Thank you. So I, we're going to brain dump, just sort of say a word. And my thought is that this board is going to be out for the entire series. Um, but when you hear capitalism in one or two words, what do you think? And wait until I get to the dry erase board, because we're going to write them down.
Market forces. Sorry, what was the first word? Market, Market forces. Market forces. Thank you. 
world system? The world system. I keep thinking of the, the like of companies, organizations, like the life of organizations, the importance of the organization, I think the mothership. Yeah. yeah like, like corporations, it's people. Yeah. <laughs>
Or, in the words of hip-hop activist Rosa Clemente, I love this quote, capitalism, I think it's institution all over this country. It is really what is the oppressive force, and it's that force that are keeping us, as particularly working class people, from achieving this idea of, you know, economic justice. Economic justice, mind you, is not devoid from racial justice, just like it's not devoid of gender justice. So what are we to do with capitalism as people of faith, with all these thoughts and feelings and emotion of capitalism mixed in with scriptures that tell us things like, and you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines. For it is a jubilee. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price, and if the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God. Or, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. And we hear of Jesus entering the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And of Acts, in Acts 2, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And then later in Acts, but a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge, but kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. But we also, in Scripture, have this parable. For it is if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I made five more. And the one with two did the same. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I know that you are a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I buried it. The master said, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. What are we to do with scriptures like that? What are we to do with capitalism? that creates a system of winners and losers, but some might argue a system of freedom. That creates a system of individualism, right? And pulling up by one's bootstraps without recognizing, yeah, that's, boots are different, right, <laughs> for different people. What are we to do when capitalism, I love what Christine said, right? It's so a part of us. It's like air. We can't even see it. But it's there. Right? What are we to do? What are we to do when we hear, and I think when we know, right, that capital is indeed destroying the common in both its physical and social forms at alarming rates? That climate change, resource depletion, and other ecological disasters are ever-increasing threats. That extreme social inequality, barriers and hierarchies of wealth, race, and nationality, crushing poverty, and a host of other menaces too are shattering social forms of common that have wrought, that have, are havoc wrought by capitalism. And what are we to do? And these are old numbers. But in 2013, in this country, when the top 1% of households owned 36.7% of all privately held wealth, and then the next 19%, so the managerial, professional, small business stratum, which probably a lot of us fall under, 
had 52.2% of the wealth, which means that just 20% of the people own a remarkable 89% of the wealth, leaving only 11% of the wealth for the bottom 80%. What are we to do as people captivated by the gospel, believing that yes, we are in fact players in the kingdom of God, even in the midst of this capitalistic system that seems like air, at times feels unmovable and unchangeable and something that we're having to try to explain to our six or seven year old because this is the world that he is a part of. In his most recent work, Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America, Reverend Dr. Michael Eric Dyson implores specifically white folk by saying, Beloved, if the enslaved could nurture on the vine of their desperate deficiency of democracy the spiritual and moral fruit that fed our civilization, then surely we can name and resist demagoguery. We can protest and somehow defeat the forces that threaten the soul of our nation. To not try, to give up on the possibility that we can make a difference, is to give up on our past, on our complicated, difficult, but victorious past. The problem, though, is instead allowing hopelessness to steal our joyful triumph before we work hard enough to achieve it. So what do I hope for this series, for us? Why did I have the crazy idea in December to take lead teams sort of like, let's talk about economics and wanting to focus it in on capitalism. I hope that this series allows us the space to name our exasperation and our grief and the weight of our hopelessness around this huge, powerful system we all are implicated by and participate in day in and day out, that perhaps stifles us, and I would even say a system that holds our imagination captive, wondering if there really is another way, more in tune with the kingdom of God. But I hope that this space doesn't just stay in exasperation and grief, but I want us to create the space to do what Wolf noted, to ask, I love this, to ask questions of purpose and be open to how those answers, because we might figure out or find an answer or two, might implicate us to act, to transform, to tweak, to change certain aspects of our lives as individuals, our lives as a community of Emmaus Way, Perhaps, probably in Durham, with our state legislature, maybe, probably, possibly, with our national government. And I know, right, I'm keenly aware, right, this is, these, these are four weeks, right, it's four weeks, but I'm hopeful that it starts to create the space. And hear me say, right, like, 
not saying like, oh, capitalism is horrible and awful and we just need to like chuck it, right? Because realistically, that maybe it could happen, but probably not, right? Like we all are so ingrained in this system. But what I'm hopeful for is the space for us to more creatively think. A, does the system have to stay that way? As people of God, how are we invited to think and dream and work toward changing the system? But B, how are we being invited to think about and engage the system differently and in transformational ways? And I love Catherine Tanner in Economy and Grace. Talks about often in the church, when people of faith start talking about money and economics, and when we start talking about capitalism and this system, most people are like, yeah, 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 that's nice. But then they start saying, but it's just a pipe dream, right? It's just a pipe dream. This notion of what Catherine calls non-competitiveness, that we can, that we can in fact, create an economy of non-competitiveness. Oh, that'll happen in heaven. There's no way it can happen here on earth. But she says, what if you believed it wasn't a pipe dream? How might that change your engagement? So what if for the next four weeks, we hold our skepticism and our cynicism and our quite like, this really can't be, and actually thought, what if this isn't a pipe dream? What if we're being invited to think about money, economics, and capitalism as people of God in a different way? And that that invitation, going back to Brugema, is the prophetic work of the now. So that's what I'm inviting you into for the next four weeks. Um, and beyond. I hope you'll come back. It's going to be a lot of conversation um, that I'm both equal parts excited about, but also really nervous. Right? Um, because, yeah, I like money. And I like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I like nice homes. And I like being able to go and buy things and know that I can swipe and pay and I'm going to be okay and, yeah. I like a good deal and I know that a good deal on a shirt probably means that someone is in a sweatshop somewhere that I'm trying not to think about, right, that corporation and how it's being made. Um, yeah, because I like to save. But what if we're being invited into something? I want to end our time tonight with um, a prayer by Walter Brueggemann, one of the voices we heard. He wrote an excellent book a few years ago called Prayers for Privileged People. I would encourage anyone to go and purchase that book. But let us pray. Oh God, move us by your covering that we may come to ourselves. That we may notice the ways in which we are far from home. 
that we may reckon how we have betrayed ourselves for quick fixes. Give us the capacity to return to you, to be welcomed home, to be invited to dance, and then to a fatted calf, to receive it all as gift from you. As people of entitlement, we learn together how deeply in need we are. Receive us and move us, that we may accept your welcome to newness, even when we are frightened. Exhibit to us your great simplicity among our complex habits. and absolution on money and capitalism. I really couldn't think of anything on this. And actually, humorously, I channeled my inner Christine when I wrote this this morning. But uh, uh, this is a text that I've read to you at least once, and our dear friend Josh Busman has read this at least once, but uh, it's a favorite of mine. This is uh, Slavos Zizek's uh, Final words speaking to the Occupy gathering uh, in Manhattan. He was talking about first capitalism, and then he started talking about Christianity. He's uh, a, an atheist um, uh, Yugoslavian, ran for the presidency of the country at one point, is a, a famed theorist in this realm, but this is him speaking at Occupy. In 2011, the Chinese government prohibited on TV, film, and in novels all stories that portray alternate realities or time travel. This is a good sign for China. It means that people still dream about alternatives. So attacked and prohibited is dreaming. Here we don't think of prohibition because history has even oppressed our capacity to dream. Look at the movies we see all the time. It's easy to imagine the end of the world an asteroid destroying all of life, and so on, but we cannot imagine the end of capitalism. So what are we doing here? They're telling you that we, the gatherers there, are not American here, but the conservative fundamentalists who claim they are really Americans have to be reminded of something. What is Christianity? It's the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? It's an egalitarian community of believers who are linked by love for each other and who have their own freedom and responsibility to do it. In this sense, the Holy Spirit is here now. Down there on Wall Street, there are millions who are worshiping blasphemous idols. So all that we need is patience. So Zizek's two indictments, the absence of economic imagination in our society and a strong alignment of Christianity absence of that imagination hit close to home, right? And they leave us with quite a dilemma. How can the fish reject the stagnation and pollution of the water the fish lives in without rejecting that reality entirely and becoming a martyr? And can the fish's faith in the creator of that water somehow not become an impediment to understanding the danger that the water presents to the fish and to others? Broad theological brushstrokes are indeed called for to denounce the inequities of the world we live in. We live in a world 
where the accumulation of wealth is a horrific sin in the face of hunger, poverty, and economic uh, environmental destruction. We will fail morally, I believe, if we hold back in naming that clear reality. <clears throat> but broad brushstrokes are not enough, right, alone. We are fish in the water, and hence theologically imaginative responses become quite complex for us. We must do more than simply critique broadly and evade our own interest and dismiss ourselves as powerless. This series, I think, will help us kind of fill in some of the societal, community, and individual brushstrokes of theological hope and action. But as Molly said, where do we begin? The historical frame of the worship tradition that we follow offers, I think, a wonderful beginning point in this, and that's the act of confession and also the gift of absolution. So for a confession tonight, I would like to guide us in a few points of this. Embrace these as you will. Uh, each of us in this room brings different narratives, different challenges, different dilemmas, and different opportunities for community action. We cannot speak of this without speaking of it distinctly and differently for every person in the room in certain ways. So confess, as an individual, a family member, a community member, a citizen, an employee, a student, or otherwise. And a few things that I thought might be effective confessions for us would be some of these things. Confusion. Even the text that Molly read move and pull in different directions. Complicity and entanglement. There's much privilege in this space. Also, fear of this conversation. A point that I've made many, many times with you through the years is that I can love the gospel. And I know that many of you are in this situation now, but nothing scared me more about the gospel than my children. Because thinking about the gospel related to them made me think, wow, there's nothing about following the gospel that's going to help them become the things that we think they should become or things that parents worry about all the time, right? So if you're raising kids, this is probably something that scares you, right? Is not living in the system sounds like losing. Or at least that's how I was raised. Or confessing exasperation. We've talked about this for years in multiple settings. Or our own limited imagination or our own powerlessness. <coughs> Quickly, I would say, if you have anything else you'd like to add to that list, things that you would confess as an individual, a community member, uh, probably whoever you are. Lack of solutions. Lack of solutions, yes. That probably fits right under exasperation, which was the first thing that came to me, Brian. Absolutely. Accountant, you have solutions. Exhaustion. Exhaustion, yeah. Greed. Grief, yeah. Greed. Absolutely. Oh, greed. Yeah, greed. Both. Yeah. I confuse uh, dignity with someone's net worth. Yeah, dignity and net worth as a, a, con a conflated reality. Yeah. And we... My gosh, I've never done that. <laughs> indebtedness, and I don't mean just being in debt. I mean indebtedness to others yeah. financially. Yeah, this idea that for many of us, we feel like we've, I built that, right? <laughs> Even though none of us did, right? Not all of us came from someone, somewhere, something, some obstacle, some privilege, right? Sure. Anything else? Good list, by the way. Tim, I, I was thinking this earlier while I was talking, but 
I was raised in a family that glorified the middle class, such that um, we held, you know, was instilling me was a lot of disdain for people who had more than we did. So people who had money, um, we looked down upon them. Um, you know, something was wrong with them. They'd done something, you know, that got them where they were. Um, kind of, you know, put help. We held our noses up towards them, but we also didn't have any compassion for people with less than us. Um, and so I guess confessing a lack of and, and a need for um, for grace and compassion um, and understanding of both sides of that spectrum. Yeah, I think we all struggle with some sort of elasticity related to social class, right? Whatever we were, I, in my blue collar, middle class, working class background, words like highfalutin and uh, things like that were used commonly for Presbyterians like Sally, right? Or Baptists, you know, but the word I would have given Molly uh, that in terms of the list she was making later on was impolite. It was impolite for curious like me to say, because I knew what class we were in. What does that person make? That was impolite. So let me offer an affirmation and a absolution, a two for one today. The affirmation is this. You are engaged in a conversation that are in relationship with many here who care deeply about that conversation. You have noticed we are not a megachurch. There are not millions who want to have this conversation, but you are in a group of people who do want to have that. Um, many here in their lives, and I'm talking about entrepreneurs in this community and people that are in multiple settings, live and exhibit the kind of imagination that we bemoan being absent in many places, especially, especially in Christendom. Who um, have engaged and joined a community of hope, moral critique, faith, and imagination, and we refuse to back off of moral critique. It's a space that a lot of people don't enter. And of course, there's always more work to do in the game of justice. And part of the beauty, this was the anthem of the civil rights movement in many ways, is the struggle. There is beauty and depth in the struggle. So receive this absolution. It's a historic one, but I've rewritten it a little bit. God, the author of mercies, through the death and resurrection of the Christ, has fashioned a world that not only yearns for reconciliation, but also finds that reconciliation to be possible by the sending of the Holy Spirit among us, who comes to us as a muse, an agent, and a power of hope, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Through the ministry of the church in every community that embraces this hope, May you receive pardon, peace, and the vision of actions great and small that construct God's peaceable kingdom. I absolve you from the wounds we have named this evening in the more powerful name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Tim. So, I'm going to try it introduce you to this table tonight. When we first started talking about series, to give another in my, apparently tonight, long-running background takes into the, this week, planning this week, I wanted to call the series Life Under the Firmament, um, but Under the Firmament, which in my King James background, yeah, the firmament, it's, it's in Genesis 1, go read it in the King James, but the 
idea of this thing that, you know, it's an imaginary thing that holds the heavens and it's above all of us and we can't penetrate it, but it's between God and us and we can only conceive God through it. Like, that seemed like a pretty good analogy. You know, we didn't do that because not everybody grew up with the King James Version. Like I but I think that we've done, in our own ways, some pretty good jobs tonight of capturing just how impenetrable and just how withered Wolf and Molly and Tim of naming in a, in a lot of different ways how this conversation feels like a really big one. It feels pretty challenging to take this on and to, and, and to I was I had a different Josh Busman, see that Korea Josh Busman story that I was going to use, but I won't because we've already hit our quota. But that notion that our imagination is so constricted by our life within capitalism, we can't imagine something outside of it. I think we get that. I, I get that. I think a lot, sounds like a lot of us get that. An instance that I had recently that I thought named this in a really different and interesting way is I, I often will put Martin Luther King Jr. quotes at the top of our program for the Religious Coalition luncheons we hold each month. And the one that's often up there is in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All persons are caught in an inseparable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are all you ought to be. You can never be all you ought to be until what I am all what I ought to be. That is the interrelated nature of reality. And I think the reason we appreciate folks like Dr. And we are so so enamored and like that, that his example rings so loudly 50 years later is because he was under the firmament, or however you want to describe the thing, imagining, creating, enacting some way of imagining ourselves outside of the system and saying, no, actually, the inner interrelated nature of reality looks like this. It means we are not in competition. We are interrelated, but I'm not, this is not a zero-sum game. We need those practices. We need those imaginations. And I think that's what we're hoping to get out of this series. But as we come together each week, we practice that sort of practice in this table. It declares in the most intimate but grand terms the interrelated nature of our reality and what we've centered our faith on, that we come to these elements as people that need sustenance. And we need bread, and we need drink, and we need wine, but we also need each other. That the nature of our reality together as a community, as the nature of reality in general, we hope, we pray, must be interrelated in ways that many of the systems we live within would defy. So I think when we invite you to this table tonight, we're inviting you to a practice we always do, but also inviting you into a very intimate, direct, specific possibility of what a new imagination might look like. If we gathered around a table and said, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and looked in another's face and said, somewhere in there, something is interrelated with me and what God is up to in the world and what Christ came to accomplish, and that in practicing this together, I am declaring some different way of being that I can step out from here tonight and gather around other tables and seek out that imagination that we've been talking about. We think that we can, we say that we can do that. And I think because I think we think we can really do it.
And one thing that we missed in Wolf's, um, in, in, in the law of the larger context, we cut his clip, was that he said, I believe, I know, in fact, that the system will be remade, but it will happen in the world to come. We're people who believe that the world to come is coming now. And we practice it here every week, and that's the table we invite you to tonight. So come to the table, break bread, pour wine and juice for each other, believing, imagining, knowing that a new thing is about to happen, even tonight. Welcome to the table.